Honey Heist, Illimat, and Roman Roll. This is Staying In. This this evening, gentlemen, uh, in between uh, making dinner, my wife and I partook on our very first bite of the latest and greatest peanut butter creation to come from... I mean, I don't know who makes these things up, but they might be unhinged slightly. I don't know. Obviously, Marmite peanut butter has become a staple uh, in our house. It literally affixes, like, pictures to walls <laughs> yeah. and... When, when I need to bind documents together, then it's Marmite peanut butter. You just can't get enough of that savoury, salty taste. But now, now, the, the great minds of peanut butter have created crunchy nut peanut butter. Now, is that, hang on, is that crunchy nut as in kind of, like, chocolate? Or crunchy nut as in crunchy nut cornflakes? Crunchy nut cornflakes what's crunchy nut chocolate isn't that it's like oh i'm thinking of whole nuts whole nut like cadbury's you're thinking of fruit and nut no i was thinking no i mean technically or also probably fruit and nut fits into that category i was thinking whole nut and i just messed up i made a mistake what can i say it's kellogg's it's kellogg's branded crunchy nut peanut butter that's a catchy title Mm. well I, i am genuinely genuinely interested in this and I am genuinely, genuinely horrified because I dislike all components <laughs> of this. Now, we, 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 we tried it this, this evening before dinner. I don't know why. And like... Um, <laughs> what, just on a blini? <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a crumpet, which I guess is a poor man's blini. So um, that's how they marked it. And I'll tell you what... <laughs> Finally, someone has invented a peanut butter for dessert. <laughs> like, it's not it's not overly sweet. Like, the peanuts are honeyed before they're put into the butter. But it you couldn't eat it for breakfast. You couldn't eat it for a snack. But for dessert, mm, mm, I, could, I could helpfully have myself some crunchy nut peanut butter. Definitely. It's, just, it's, it's really weird. To, we both sort of turned to each other and went, this is a dessert thing. Is it like that sweet, that chocolate sweet thing that begins with a P? What's it called? P- oh, oh um, praline. Praline, yeah. Is it like praline? A little bit. I mean, I don't like praline. Uh, I, to be honest, I think nuts and fruit in chocolate are a terrible waste of I agree. space where chocolate could be. <laughs> um, but in your tummy. Yeah, it kind of... Uh, but it, it, it's just it's just like it's not overly sweet but it's like surprising it's the same way that have you ever had have you ever had cereal as a snack rather than you know for breakfast oh yeah 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 great as a kid yeah yeah well even now it's just like you know it, it's kind of it, it's kind of like that that it's spreading into that realm of territories it's not something that you would have for breakfast it's not something that you would have exclusively for a meal it is that kind of a fancier snack Something little, something with a little bit that's a little bit more interesting than just peanut butter. It's crunching up peanut butter. So, Sam, how many different, how many different meals or kind of meals of the day would you allow cereal to be had? Because obviously, breakfast is fine. You've just said snacks there. We're obviously we're bringing desserts into this now that cereal is allowed. How how many different meal types are you gonna are you gonna let kind of cereal in on? I, I think I I could have cereal for every every meal. There are enough different types of cereal for variety 
but also to try and replicate the different meals of the day. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I reckon I could do it. Some sort of absurd charity challenge <laughs> where all I can eat is cereal for a month. Um, there's bound to be some sort of celebrity diet, which is just like, yeah. you know, the... The, the Kellogg Sunday roast. My wife, my wife was watching this program the other day. Have you ever seen it? It's called Secret Eaters, and, no. and it's this program where there's there's this bunch of people go on it, and they're just like, "Oh, I eat healthy. I've got no no idea why I'm putting on weight." And they film them over the course of the week, and they basically like reveal that like. Well, you know, the salad you had for lunch was great, but it was this sausage roll you had in bed before you went to sleep, which is probably why you're is, is putting that the on one a little where they bit kind of weight. <laughs> Is that the one where they kind of follow people? They've snuck out in the middle of the night to go to the Tesco and they've got themselves like a wrap or something. They just scoff it outside and they're like, oh, that's what it was. And then you went to McDonald's uh, and you had that. Yeah, yeah. And then you <laughs> yeah, came you home and yes, you did Big have Mac. a protein bar, but that wasn't going to undo all the bad all the bad work. So there was this guy on it and he was just like, and they asked him, do, do you feel like your breakfast is very healthy? And he was like, oh yeah, I have... I have Special K, and it showed him like you know filling filling up this bowl of Special K. Now, if, if you've ever calorie c- controlled or calorie counted and ever had like a proper portion of cereal, like it is minuscule, like it's you know it really isn't the you, you know what you really need in the, in a morning. But he was filling up this bowl like probably like ninety grams of Special K, and then he broke over it like strawberries, put in some banana, and then. <laughs> And then he pours over single cream. <laughs> and I just think at that point, how can you not put two and two together and realise? And, like, and a glassier cherry on top. <laughs> yeah, just like, well, you know. Cream the is, cream is the same as milk. Is... It's the same colour. Keep them both in the fridge. <laughs> it's just thicker milk, isn't it? You know. I'm surprised there was any space for the cream. (laughs) Oh, I just love the fact that, like, because it's Special K, it means you can have, like, single cream for free. Like, it cancels each other out. Oh, brilliant. I love it. Oh, Sam, I I very much Mm -hmm. enjoyed... uh, What have I done? Oh, no, 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 nothing, nothing bad at all. I was just saying, <laughs> okay. you do, I'm a bit worried that you're kind of just on the defensive and actually I'm, I'm wanting to congratulate you once again for a wonderful evening we spent with our RPG. Um, as we've mentioned, Pete isn't here today and he usually runs the RPG and we gave him a little bit of time off and you very kindly and deftly stepped in and ran a one-off for us. Uh, I, 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 I did, yes, Tremendous yeah. fun. Yeah, it's something. It's a one-off um, that I've wanted to do for quite a while. It's called Honey Heist, and quite often you get you get things that, are, that like say, "Oh, this you know one-off one-page RPG," and it never really turns out to be like just one page. But Honey Heist is actually just like it literally is like two sides of an A4 piece of paper, and that's all we needed to run this run this game i mean you can go on to itch.io and grant howitt's page there and you can still download like the original hand-drawn uh version of the of the honey heist rules which which is incredible it's like literally is like back of a fag packet you know serviette in a in a cafe kind of creativity that's not to denigrate it in any way it's no, just no, no, like I, I love I, that I, I really enjoy i really like value 
that kind of creativity that seems to spark from somewhere and they've gone to efforts to really preserve to preserve that like upstairs in a drawer somewhere i've got a a paragraph of writing that i think was written by anthony horowitz he was a guest in a studio that i was working in and between like news bulletins or something he he wrote down this like paragraph of like of a story and um i was cleaning up the studio afterwards and i and i picked it up and i've kept it and like i've always like loved the fact that i've got this like original bit of like anthony horowitz writing that like someday i hope that i could like maybe do something with like spark off and like it it feels the same like when you look at this um sort of sketched idea from uh for honey heist that it just feels like something really organic and creative and and it it really does inspire you to like make the best out of it and to really take on that creative challenge because because really there there are no real rules to it i mean it's it's like it's probably is the simplest rpg i've ever prepared for but yet it got some of the the best results and 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 actually it actually really lends itself well for a one off i think for a one off you want something where it it's it's tight in places isn't it in its framework it has a very simple rule set up in the sense that there's not too many rules and actually it's about having that that framework in place for you to be able to kind of run a mock as it were and that was really quite nice because actually Pete's done a wonderful job as well in that regard. But that's obviously has to be sustained over a longer period. It's a bigger campaign, say, for example. So there's a little bit more, little bit more rules um, to kind of take on board there. Um, here, what I quite liked was not only did you kind of pick the optimum moment to do this, but actually you managed to enfold it within the actual other RPG we're doing, which is quite nice, actually, which was something I wasn't expecting. That that was something I wanted to do from the start, and it's it's made a bit difficult by by the rules. But as I said, you, 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 you do feel like all he's really giving you is kind of like a, a sort of starting point for you to go off on. So how Honey Heist works is, and this is like right in the... the, the sort of the top of the page of the pdf it says it's honeycon 2017 you are going to undertake the greatest heist the world has ever seen two things one you have a complex plan that requires precision timing and two you're a goddamn bear and like that's like that's a setup for the whole thing everyone rolls three dice and that tells them what kind of bear they are you know gives them a bit of their character uh, informs a bit of like the role that they'll play in the heist and then the gm rolls another um, set of three dice and that sort of determines you know where the convention is you know what the ultimate prize is that the bears are trying to attain and uh, a, a secret sort of subplot that's going underneath that the bears are not aware of and that's like the whole setup and the bears only have two stats there's bear and there's criminal and you start off with a game each bear has three points in each and as they're going through the the mission, whenever they do something bearish, um, so like for example, mauling something or scaring someone or you know eating honey or whatever, they roll against that stat. So they'll they'll roll a d6, and if they roll a number that's equal to or lower than their current bear stat, which at the start is three, they will succeed in what they're trying to do. If they if the GM deems that they succeed really well or their plan goes off without a hitch, they it's it's in the rules that they are essentially becoming uh, more and more like a criminal and less bear-like. So they'll move a, move a point um, from bear into criminal. So now 
if you were taking it from the start, then there'd be four points in criminal and two in bear. And the same is said for, for criminal. So when you're doing a criminal action, uh, which is something pretty much not associated with a bear at all, and you try and do a criminal action, if you succeed on that or if you fail, uh, it's said that the bear gets really, really frustrated, so therefore becomes more like a bear. So they move a point from criminal to bear. If the crim- if the bears ever get to six points in one stat, then they either become completely feral bears and run away, or they come, com- or they become criminal masterminds and kind of just take over the show. And like that, that that's it. And and we didn't have to set it in the fantasy game that we're playing, but there's really little that I had to do to transpose it into into that world. And it's just it's just as like you're literally unleashing we had six bears trying to steal a briefcase of honey from this medieval fair. And it you know, it's that like that's all you need as like a prompt. You know, you're a bear and you've got to try and do something ultimately very, very unbearish. And yeah. <laughs> and uh in a world that doesn't really bend to your will like there's no like you can communicate as a group of bears but beyond that the world is still the world like humans are scared of bears humans cannot understand bears a bear in the middle of a marketplace isn't going to is going to cause suspicion but what i think i love about the game at its what i love about the game most is is it kind of understands that even though that's how the world is set up there is just the deftest hint in the rules that you can you can be silly by the fact that there is one table on the front page which is just called the bonus hat table and um you essentially roll 1d8 and it tells you what kind of hat your bear will wear and i just love what that informs and what that tells the players is that like yeah you're a group of bears and you're trying to do this heist in a very real and human world but still you've got a fez on so maybe it's not all that serious that have some fun yeah you don't have to like deep dive role play as a bear dan you are our dousing rod weren't you because that was your specialist skill as your bear what kind of bear were you again because we were all different types of bear weren't we i was a i was a yes. sun bear I was a sunbound. I had a special skill, which was sensing honey. So uh, to be fair, I think it kind of plays into some of what you're saying there. And it, as I was imagining kind of the game as we were playing it, I imagined it as a cartoon. So the the, yes. the point where kind of my bear is kind of sniffing and trying to find the honey and then f- s- smells the honey. I imagine it like in those cartoons, like the, the, the hound who smelts me and suddenly like as straight as an arrow, his kind of body goes rigid. That's, <laughs> that's how I imagined it. I think that, as you said, that kind of played into everything that I thought about with this. I thought about if I if you smelling this honey, it's literally those visible smell lines wafting through the air, kind of going up his nose. And all of those things just kind of eases you into it in a sense of kind of, I'm not taking this, I'm here just to have some fun with it. We're bears wearing hats. That's, yeah. that's as much as you need to know without kind of, you're not thinking, okay, so... I'm a bear. What would a bear do in real life? If this was a bear, well, he would do this and this and this. He'd be he'd be scared of this. You don't you don't think about that because you're wearing a hat and a scarf, and for some reason that makes people think you're human. That's it's it was it, it was really good fun, and I think just the 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 way it's presented naturally prevents you from taking it too seriously, which I think is really valuable in a in a one shot like this. No, but it's interesting you say that, Dan, because actually that I was late to getting that because I I was a polar bear and straight away I was thinking, well, 
polar bears don't tend to eat honey. So I was trying to think of what would be my what what where is it, what's in it for me as this bear as uh, whose actual kind of specialist skill is there a thief? You know, why do I want to be um, stealing honey until Sam kind of well through the magic of Zoom took me to one side and said, look. You're just a bear. You, you just imagine in this world, Chris, you really like honey. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, oh, yeah, and also I can actually speak. Yeah, of course, yeah. So actually from then on, it was great. And actually, even though it may seem quite loose and playful and fancy-free, genuinely that very simple table of, you know, there's two things of bear and criminal was just enough. It was perfect because there are moments mm-hmm. where I remember like there was somebody offering honey samples around and I looked at my stats and I was five bear one criminal <laughs> if i just had a little bit of that i would have gone full-on bear become feral and left it was a really nice dynamic and it meant that all of us weren't just like you know when a child starts joining a football team and all they do is they follow the ball around they don't know what a formation is they don't know yeah. how to think they just all follow the ball what that meant was this stat here for us meant that we weren't all constantly going for the honey at the same time and competing with each other. It meant that everyone had their kind of moment to be a bear and everyone had their moment to be a criminal, which I really, really liked. Yeah, I, th- I think what Dan said about it being like a cartoon is pretty much absolutely spot on. Like, you know, in Hanna-Barbera cartoons or like Tom and Jerry, where Tom and Jerry do some very outlandish cartoony things, but they've still got a very human owner who is acts very human and behaves, you know, as a human and also like in scooby-doo which is like the weirdest has has a talking dog in it for christ's sake but yet the um whenever they capture one of the people who's pretending to be a ghost they're like running very human extortion scams or like insurance (laughs) or they're committing insurance fraud like it's that it is that hanna-barbera like mix of this is stupid silly cartooning but also there's like some very real and weirdly serious human elements uh, to each of those. I think my highlight was probably uh, Richard's bear uh, who <laughs> ate a ate the person who was offering out the free samples. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, who um, ate, ate the person whole. And our, our other colleague, our other friend, Greg, would try to meet him halfway by you know you know eating the other end joining at the feet um and trying to meet in the middle in some kind of weird version of lady in the tramp and spaghetti it was just hilarious uh really really good fun it's lovely isn't it when you've got something that that works it's not all hype uh, and it really does work so if if you were going to reduce a cereal down to another condiment that's a searching question that is i know like uh, you know rice crispy spread you know cocoa pops ketchup i don't know <laughs> could have frosty's toothpaste uh slight okay 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 we can do this i'm gonna say either the, the two i'm blending is squirty cream and sugar puffs. Oh, okay. I mean, actually, no, they're not called sugar puffs anymore. They're called honey monster puffs. Genuinely, that's that's the brand name that they're called now. Sugar is bad. Yeah. No, I I quite like squirty cream as a vehicle. I'm I'm down with that. I think um I think you could have shredded wheat garnish. So on some Asian dishes. You could like sometimes they put fried onions on top of Asian dishes. You could have like a fried onion but shredded wheat styled. Um, I mean, 
garnish. I don't know. If I was making sushi and somebody <laughs> told me, we've run out of nori paper crisps, but don't worry. <laughs> we've got the shredded wheat. <laughs> yeah, but it's, just, it's a slippery slope from there because then someone says, oh, we haven't got any shredded wheat. Oh, we do have shreddies. Can that, can that work? Can that work? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great exercise and I know now that this is all I will be thinking about for the rest of the week mm-hmm. trouble if you, sleeping if you could turn and... if you could turn a cereal into another condiment what would you choose that that's that's the question I think I think Dan's given a great answer but also maybe the perfect answer which is cereal plus squirty cream <laughs> <laughs> and, and that guy who ha- that guy could put it on his special K completely yeah he'd be blown away yeah like I always thought as a kid that they should sell the milk they should make Cocoa Pops in a factory and then and then sell the milk from that as like a chocolate milk like a Cocoa Pops branded um, milkshake that would be amazing yeah that was always that was always my idea but it's never Never took off. Never took off. I mean, ricicles would really work as an equivalent to like hundreds and thousands, like over the top of an ice cream. Mm. Could you imagine that? would Be quite nice. Yeah, I think you could. You could do because I know that Heinz actually released uh, recently um, salad cream ice cream. Uh, what? Yeah. So I think that it's not out of the realms of possibility that just like when you go camping as a kid, you always took those multi-pack variety packs of. Uh, of cereal you could have the same thing but it's like ice cream toppers so special like cocoa pops or like ricicles or like little crushed up bits of frosty you know you, you can make it at home but you're always going to buy the branded version at the supermarket because they always taste better well there's a um there's a brewery near where i work called the seven brothers brewery and also where i work is the kellogg's factory and I used to live not far away from the Kellogg's factory, and it took me about a year to realise why every Sunday it really smelled like popcorn. Um, <laughs> I just never put two and two together that they might be roasting cornflakes. I just always thought it smelled like a like a like a, a, a like a cinema. But they actually make beer using the some of the um, like the cornflakes and the uh, Rice Krispies and Cocoa Pops they don't use, so they make a stout using cocoa pops which is really really incredible and like make an ipa using rice krispies and a and a and a, and a lager using cornflakes it's really good They're i great. mean to make it a truly symbiotic relationship though surely it should also go the other way <laughs> beer flavored cornflakes <laughs> or or in some sort of horrible like cereal cannibalism you're pouring the <laughs> the <Yeah>. stout flavored <laughs> beer using cocoa just, pops over the cocoa pops. Just that the logo on the box is Tony the Tiger slumped over a bowl, <laughs> <laughs> just his head in it. They're groggy. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> See, I I resisted getting an external storage um, for a while. For no particular... I wasn't resisting because I didn't want one. It's just kind of like I never got around to it. I didn't think I really needed it. Um, and eventually got to the point where like I, no, I got a couple of games on my PS4, which would just take up the entirety of my PS4. And I'd got um, my VR. And so I wanted quite... Because VR games tend to be smaller, but I wanted quite a lot of them on there. So I got lots of choices. 
so I ended up just not being able to get everything that I wanted in there. So I eventually invested in kind of getting like a one terabyte hard drive, which actually wasn't that expensive, and kind of plugged it in. And I was able to basically just move all of my games that I mm-hmm. regularly play onto there. And you have no idea the freedom that just having all of the, your games, like without having to download anything, I mean, potentially updates and stuff, but without having to download them, without having to just click onto them, like, oh, I can't play it for three hours because my internet's crap all of it all of it's there at any time i've got all the games that we play all any kind of multiplayer game i've got them ready to go so there's never a kind of situation where we say oh what should we play oh i haven't got that downloaded i'm not gonna be able to get that in time i mean because i know pete said and patty didn't want to get one because i think he talked before about not wanting to get one because he'd eventually get a ps5 and so didn't want that but i found that these external drives they carry over so you can just plug one of them into the next so there was there was no downside to it and when i kind of realized Mm -hmm. all that stuff i was like you know what i'm just gonna invest i found one that i i like the look of and i invested it just it has just kind of changed it seems really weird and really dated to be saying this now but it has changed the way i kind of play games because i'm not having to pick and choose what i play at a time i don't have to kind of focusing on two games perhaps that i can play because the other one's going to take me an hour or an hour and a half just to get myself in a position to play them yeah i've got a i've extended my storage i even i even on the ps3 i even uh extended the storage internally so i opened that bad boy up and i Ooh. put in a new um hard drive and, be- and because i'm really security conscious upstairs in a box somewhere in an attic is still a is still a white bubble wrapped envelope on the, which on the outside it says in black marker like Sam's PS3 hard drive <laughs> old <laughs> brackets <laughs> just um, in case you want to go back to it at some point well no because I didn't want to dump it in a landfill and someone like oh, okay. plugs it in and goes oh we, we didn't complete much of Abe's Odyssey <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I've, I've extended both the PS3 and the PS- I, th- I think I did I did the PS4 very very early on it obviously extended the the switch yeah the switch was easy to do because that's just an sd card the the ps vita was awful because they had like i don't know if you remember like sony developed their own memory cards for them and it was like something like 50 quid to get eight gigabytes more of memory like it was it was ridiculous but i i agree with you dan like having that having that freedom is is really good and being able to like jump from game to game and like that is now like the this sort of buzz term for the xbox series x and the ps5 is that for some reason mad people want to be able to like literally jump instantly from one game to another like six games at a time i i i I do like it i feel like sometimes it's a bit like netflix where because you've got all this storage you've got like 15 games we're like no not that not that not that See what I what I like. I mean, the the two sides of it is, as I said before, in the multiplayer stuff, because I, I don't usually play those by myself. So I like having them all just ready to go if the whim takes us that we want to play on. I don't know, Ghost Recon Fire, Wildlands or something like that. That the kind of the the whim takes me that way. And then I've got a selection of games that I will play, which maybe fit different moods. Which because I've got got a seven week old, and so gaming uh, is kind of vastly reduced as a result. Um, but what I have found is that I'll play some games quite late at night when I'm up with her. So she'll be kind of asleep or falling asleep on the sofa and I've, I'll play some games to kind of keep myself awake. And I've, I've ten- tended to gravitate towards a couple. So I've gravitated towards, originally my first thought was, okay, uh, maybe something like Red Dead Redemption 2. My thinking being that it's kind of lots of side quests and lots of mo- like smaller in- individual kind of quests and maybe that would be a good way of progressing through. 
that's not really worked out because it, it i there is immediately kind of a big world that i want to explore and i can't do that in short bursts so the kind of on the tier down from that i've moved to uh so the games so the games i'm playing now uh, Sam, you will appreciate one of them. Uh, well, you'll probably both appreciate both, but Sam, you will get one. Chris, you'll get the other. Tends to be uh, either FIFA 20 or yes, or Uncharted: The Nathan Drake Collection. Oh, okay, interesting. Because those and those are the two that I've kind of fallen on. What I've with with FIFA, I've for the first time, and this to anybody who's played FIFA, this will sound strange. For the first time, I've kind of entered into the world of Ultimate Team. And try to figure oh, out what that is. Daniel. Oh, Daniel. I have no. to say, I have no clue what's going on. There are so many challenges and tasks and quests and all these different stuff I've tried to get, and I get cards and I don't know why I'm getting cards or what the cards have, are. Have for. you not? Have you not asked your? Have you not asked your young son what what you have to do? Because I think I feel like it's very much catered to. He's he's only three. I don't want him to be playing like heavily loot boxed games right now. I'm happy he's playing his (laughs) CBB's iPad games, which he loves. Um, But yes, I've been playing that and trying to just work my way through that. And do you ever remember, um, again, Sam, this is more for you than it would be for Chris, I imagine. Did you ever play like um, back in the day, like ISS Pro Evo 2 and stuff like that? Did you play those games then? So do you ever play the, the the Master League mode, which is like the main kind of mode on there yes yes ultimate team kind of reminds me of that that sense of having kind of a kind of a collection of players that you can't that aren't great but you can build up your team over time and kind of swapping players out now there's a whole there's like so much complexity to ultimate team for my money too much complexity i lose track i just want some players let me play with them and i'll buy some new players if i need them that's that's all i really want but anyway that's one side of it the other side of it being uh, Uncharted, uh, Nathan Drake collection. So I've just in I managed in four sessions, um, and not long sessions. I managed to blast through the first game, um, whack mm-hmm. it down on easy. Um, I'm now kind of about fifteen twenty percent into Uncharted two, and it's lovely seeing those big jumps between the games. Kind of that first game being still really good, but then seeing like that massive jump it takes up into the second one, and I, I remember there being a massive jump to the third one, and obviously to the fourth one. I've only ever played the fourth one once, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting past the trilogy and moving on to that one again. I also really enjoy the fact that when I'm playing the uh, the Nathan Drake collection, every now and again it pops up in the corner like a statistic update where, and it tends to be one of you two um, that I've kind of like. I think yesterday it popped up saying that. I killed one less person with explosions than Sam had, or something like that. Oh, which, right, okay, good. which surprised me, considering I can see from the stats, Sam's only played this once, and this is at least the second time, maybe even third time I've played it. So Sam just I mean, kills that, a lot of people MO. with explosions. Uh, well, I, I, I've what, what? Which one is that? This is on. That's on Uncharted t- uh, Two. I've played that game three times, but uh, I think the first time, first two times was. On the original Uncharted. Team. Yeah, so this would just be through the Nathan Drake collection. Yeah, the third time I played it was the Nathan Drake. But that's that's some of the stuff I love because you can look at all of your stats and you can compare them against kind of friends and stuff. Um, so I've got, I I look at compared to it's funny just you can see from the stats how different people play. So if you were to look at mine, um, I'm doing it a little bit less now, but you would see I really favour searched a couple of weapons. Like I just favour the handgun because I like doing headshots and I will just I will just focus purely in on that one single gun. So most of my kills come from that or maybe the sniper rifle. And it's just it's interesting you can see them see someone does lots of 
melee kills and stuff like that and you just kind of get a sense just from stats how they've played that game and then every now and again it pops up that i've overtaken chris or something in terms of headshots or i've overtaken sam with kills by explosion and all that stuff it's really, it's really it kind of adds that little kind of nugget to when you're playing of it's it's obviously not cooperative but there is a sense of kind of co-op playing with that because you it feels like you're playing with friends even though you're absolutely not and it's like a really nice way to while away those those times when i'm when i'm looking after the baby quite late at night perhaps and i'm not spending a huge amount of time but because it's uneasy i can get through it quite quickly there's not a lot of challenge and it's just i, I mean i love those games anyway they're they are my most my favorite gaming series and i just can't wait to, to to move on through it again without the worry of oh i died again i can't how do i get through this i can't get through this i die so rarely because it's on it's on easy purposefully so when i play a game first time i always play it on normal and then after that i just whack it down to the easiest so i can just have fun with it got nothing to prove absolutely no. yeah as i've said to you many times normal for me is how the game was meant to be played and then after that all bets are off do what you want what what games have you been playing sam when you're when you've been kind of babysitting is the wrong word because he, he's your son but kind of when you're when you're on duty yeah uh mainly stuff on my switch because uh, on the switch you can you because you can essentially split the controller you don't have to sit there with your hands together so if i've got one arm one arm supporting his head and the other arm supporting his body i can essentially have my hands crossed over and naturally but yet still holding mm. the right the right parts of the of the wow. of the so controller. It's a logistical thing for you yeah or i can like be standing up with him like bouncing him and have my hands really far apart, but still like controlling controlling the game, like wandering around their living room, just playing FIFA on my Switch, like with my hands quite far apart, and just like playing it on my Switch. So mm. it's been it's it's great. It's the it's it's the father's way to play. You're like Chad <laughs> Young Fat in Hard Boiled. <laughs> yeah, next I'll be jumping through plate glass windows with my with my Joy-Con controllers. Yeah, FIFA. I got FIFA 21 because I haven't. I because I after I had FIFA on the Vita, I banned myself from ever owning a copy of FIFA again. But the only way I lapsed was when uh, one came up cheap, so I bought it so I could play with you, Dan. And I knew that it will be a good paternity game uh, to play, so I got the new FIFA for the Switch. And because of the way that EA runs is, it will be the best version of, of FIFA that will ever be released. So I know I could just keep that game forever and it will be like perennial. Uh, it will never change. But I've actually been playing Lonely Mountains Downhill a lot. Oh, yeah. Like as a way of like winding down uh, after a day. I know Pete talked about this on a, on a, on a previous podcast. So I don't want to tread over old ground, but it is incredible. It, it's, Pete was absolutely on the money. Like it is the I most did look chill. At it. I might give that a go. Yeah, it's the most chill and relaxing experience. And being on the Switch as well, like being able to play it in bed is 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 a joy. And there is nothing more satisfying than doing skids on a bike and doing it virtually is, is still just as satisfying. It's brilliant. So we've had him on the podcast before um, and, he's, and he's a good friend of ours. Uh, he's on the... Um, He's doing the RPG with us all, and it's Richard Simpson from the We're Not Wizards podcast. And recently, he's become a bit of a a YouTube star. He has a very sort of conventional video style, as in like how he makes up the shots and all that kind of stuff. But he has a very unconventional way of reviewing and like talking about board games, which I absolutely adore. Like, I think I've always said that one of my favorite reviews he's done is. 
he he's he's Scottish, and he reviewed the game Arkwright, uh, pretending to be a Geordie <laughs> on the phone to his foreman. Like it was it was great. It's inspired. But he recently put up a video on his on his We're Not Wizards YouTube channel about the game Rome and Roll from David Chertsey and Nick Shaw, and he described that game as not cheese on toast but a pizza and you know when someone says something and you just like it just you know it regularly happens to me because my wife is just the perfect person when it comes to like boiling down board game experiences to their actual essence but when he described the game roman roll as like a pizza to the equivalent of a cheese and toast like something in me just absolutely resonated with that with that analogy because several times on this podcast I've said that I I'll, I'll talk about Roman roll on a future on a future podcast like I've I've been pushing it down the proverbial Roman road in terms of actually wanting to talk about it cuz cuz I've had it for a while plastic soldier company were very very uh, nice to 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 send us this game uh, after we we adored blitzkrieg they sent us this and as a roll and write fan like I was like enamored by this idea of using a roll and write mechanic of like the idea of create recreating Rome and like building Rome up the idea is that you're playing this after the great uh, Roman flood and the idea is that you're rolling dice you're assigning things and different values different parts and you're building up parts of Rome again and it has these wonderful like dry white markers and um, all these like different like player boards and Essentially, it's it's a Euro game, but as a roll and write. And what I mean by a Euro game, because I still think it's one of those like very ethereal classifications that we kind of give for board games. I, I feel like I've kind of landed on the description of a Euro game as something that's very, very personal. There's very, very little player inter- interaction between between people playing it. And essentially what you're doing is you're kind of managing and acquiring resources in order to build and um, make building things easier um, so for example like Catan is probably the Euro game that most people are familiar with in terms of like you are collecting sheep wood and brick in order to build buildings and you build those buildings in places to make the acquisition of more sheep wood and brick easier and so on and so on that's like and you don't really interact much with the other people that you're playing with but everyone has a good time it's very like based in economics and they tend to be quite serious so this is like the it feels like very much the first time that like a roll and write has has been um, implemented in in such like kind of like a heavy way what we would what we would term like a, a heavy game like we, we talked about the lost words on the last podcast as being like a very light game which is no sort of no way to denigrate it in any way it's it's just like by that we mean you know probably won't take that long not many rules to to talk about still a valid experience whereas roman roll is like <laughs> 15 16 pages of a4 um lots of rules lots to really get through before you start a game but you know, Richard is absolutely right. If Ganshon Clever is a is cheese on toast, then Roman Roll is a is a pepperoni pizza. You know when you have a really good pizza and it gives you all you need in one slice, and every single bite of that slice is satisfying right down to the crust. Like, yeah, it's it's just the perfect analogy for this game, which is kind of like 
you know, it just gives you everything that you need in a very, very simple and easy vehicle to eat it in, um, to play it in. <laughs> I mean, I like... I, Have you had dinner, Sam? <laughs> I'm just not eating enough crunchy nut peanut butter. But what I mean is like, whereas cheese and toast is very simple, light, easy to digest <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, get me out of this hole because you because we, right, play, okay. we play yes, Roman, we play this together, and, and, and you told me that it was a surprisingly filling game, and yeah. it, you're absolutely right. And because <laughs> Sam's um, very much down the rabbit hole here of uh, uh, food, I've got to get myself out of this out of this analogy hole. Traditionally speaking, a roll and write as a genre as a whole, and um, we, we've we've waxed lyrical about its versatility, is traditionally mm. seen as being generally on the lighter side because of yeah. that mechanic you roll. And whatever the outcome of that dice is, you'll you know often it's you use a marker pen, you've got a dry white board, and you're crossing stuff off, you're adding bits up, and you're kind of um, you're you're kind of going about it that way really. This has that, so you've got those familiar things that you know. So if you're a fan of roll and writes, and you're looking to challenge yourself a little bit more, then this is a great place to go. Really, really, oh, genuinely yeah. is because it's not taking you too far out of your comfort zone. It's giving you, as you say, Sam, more of what you love. And what I loved about this particular game is that when you look at your, your player board, there's a lot of stuff there, but actually that lot of stuff there is actually all you need. It is your aid memoir. It tells you exactly what you need to do. And it's kind of really intuitive. And a little bit as to what Dan was alluding to before, and if Pete was here, he'd push his glasses up his nose and he'd say it's like cooperation. Yes. You, know, you know, these buzzwords that Pete introduces us to um, from his vast glossary. Uh, and it is a bit like that where I'm kind of pitching against Sam but also I actually I can get I can kind of if I, if I build my city my, my buildings around Rome effectively I can actually get points in relation to the other buildings of a particular type around me and and it never felt too claustrophobic I never felt like I was kind of boxed into a corner because you know whilst I'm trying to plot my buildings there I'm also trying to elsewhere connect roads that connect other settlements elsewhere and getting bonuses there and that kind of modulation between those different areas i found generally really interesting and it never felt claustrophobic it always felt like every great euro game that the score is always generally quite close um even yes. when you're playing it for the very first time you can never really know who's gonna run away from it because it always feels very very close which is really really nice it's sizable. It's 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 chunky in terms of length and scope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pizza where you think, oh, I shouldn't have had that last mouthful, but at the same time, you feel quite satisfied. The only difference yeah. now is you need to have a nap after you've played it. But it it genuinely just really really works, and it yeah. proves Dan's point from a previous pod that roll and write games seem to be the, the the genre that just seems to fit with everything. Yeah, and and it's lovely to play a game that feels. Like it's giving you so many different options and so many different ideas of 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 what you can do on a turn and really gets you thinking about stuff, but actually comes in a manageable size box. Like after years and years and years and years and years and years and years of putting it to one side, I finally bought Concordia recently. And I'm really looking forward to being able to safely play it with you, Chris, very, very soon. And like that is a euro game in every sense of a word where it comes in this box which is hmm how big is it it's very slim but it's very very wide like it's a kind of box that well, wouldn't like fit 
Yeah, like it's a kind of box. It, exactly, it's, it's it's like the size of a Scrabble, but a, but a little bit bigger than that. It's 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 like one of those when you used to buy when you used to buy those DVDs in the old days that wouldn't quite fit on the shelf with like all the rest of all the rest of like someone would do some weird formatting like when you get like a steel book or something like that and it just wouldn't quite align with the rest of your like Concordia really like sticks out there it just doesn't doesn't quite quite fit but all essentially it is is this big big board and then 200 little wooden tokens in this massive bag and like what i love about roman roll is like because it applies this roll and write formula which is you're rolling dice and filling out a sheet of paper essentially in this case it's a dry whiteboard like it doesn't need like all the little wooden sticks representing brick it doesn't need all the little tokens representing like roads it doesn't need all like the little wooden houses that represent all the buildings you're going to make you just mark it all down on a yeah. on a little dry white board that that's in front of you and it means the box is very very small and it also means that when it comes to doing like the rules explanations all the everything you need to know in terms of like how to play the game can then be put on the sheet in front of you so even though it is a very complex and it is a very heavy board game to actually play and like feels like it feels like no roll, roll and write game i've ever played like it actually takes all those things that we're familiar with in terms of that genre and actually uses it as a as a strength and as a way of like um making playing a heavier game actually easier like because you're rolling dice you don't really have to one worry about like a lot of like tactics and strategy because that part's down to luck and you know you roll what you roll and you've got to take your chances when you can get them and you don't have to worry about remembering lots of rules because they're there on the sheet in front of you and you don't have to worry about like tracking stuff because you're marking stuff on the sheet in front of you so it's making that kind of game become very visual and become very like academic might not be the right word but what i mean is like all the information is just available to you you know at at all times so it's very very easy to make those strategic decisions it's very very easy to 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 develop tactics and say i'm gonna i'm gonna you know start building these over here i'm gonna start building roads out into these into these villages i'm gonna start like trading this this stuff here so it's really it's really very good I, I i really like it and it's even got a solo mode as well which is kind of my jam at the moment designed by nick shaw as you said who is who also designed the solo mode with blitzkrieg he's also worked with a uh, team autonomer for like wingspan and tapestry all games that we've discussed on this podcast all games we discussed he's even like this is the guy who's made a silent variant for the crew the, the quest for planet nine which is a three-player game like it's it he he's just like the solo king at, <laughs> at the moment oh, he's even made a solo mode for snowdonia i have have i played snowdonia solo i think i may have done actually but yeah it's it's i think as chris alluded to before it's kind of you know I feel like Roman Roll is the sort of pinnacle of uh, where Roll and Write games go in terms of actual, like, how heavy and, like, how complicated they can be. I feel that now that whole genre has has a complete sort of difficulty curve in terms of, like, the easiest now to, to something that's a lot more complicated and a lot more, like, for the gamer's game, as we often... <laughs> <laughs> you know that horrible phrase where it's just like this is a game for gamers 
but it it really does like you're not going to introduce it on christmas day and like expect everyone to have a good time but if like that's your jam if you really like really drilling down into strategy and tactics and even if you just like euro games and you don't like wrote uh roll and write games roman roll is like it's still just at a great level like still just a great euro game so um, I alluded to a game in the last episode of the podcast. That <laughs> I, 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 I did think of this when I was when I was editing the podcast about how both you and I, Chris, have been like pushing board games and like our opinions on them down the road, like for a couple of episodes, because like especially Roman Roll, like I was really unsure about how to actually talk about it until I heard the pizza analogy. So I'm intrigued to see what your food based analogy is for Illimat and how it finally. Oh like, my gosh. Gave you the confidence to talk talk about it. <laughs> well, it's an interesting one, really, because I, pl- I played this a while ago. Uh, this is pre-lockdown for a friend of a friend. And I've been trying to get a copy of it for myself. And thankfully through Zatu, um, I had a little notification when it was going back in stock. So I was able to get it because this used to be a kickstart. This was a kickstarted game originally. Yeah, It's only about three years old. And it comes from Keith Baker, who designed uh, Gloom, which is a card game we've played. Yes, um, yeah, big fans of Gloom. Yeah, I really love Gloom, um, with art by uh, Carson Ellis. And it comes from Together Studios. And uh, it's an abstract strategy card game. And probably in terms of the feeling that it captures, and it does it very well, and that's what they intended, was it feels like an old-fashioned forgotten card game. You're playing it and you're feeling nostalgic, but it's very strange feeling nostalgic for a game that is three years old. But it also has a little bit of edge where it feels like it's a game that, you know, John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I, mathematician and astrologer mm. would play. There's, there's the, the occult vibe to it. Two to four players. Last, it's a really weird running time because I've played games of Illimat that can go very quickly. I've played games of it that kind of are quite long. So... It can last between a quarter of an hour to a full a full blown hour, and I think that obviously obviously depends on the player count, really. But one of the reasons why I really like this game is, aside from its mechanics, it's actually it's actually its history. And often I don't tend to look into the origins of a game, uh, generally because uh, when I kind of do research for the pod, I'm much more interested in the actual playing of it, I suppose, really. But this one I found particularly interesting because actually the origin of this game comes from a band, uh, the Decemberists, who back in 2009, they had this idea when they did this photo shoot where they would depict themselves as if they were in a secret society or playing this weird board game. And they're, they're big fans of board games. And actually, they um, when they're on the road touring, they do play board games, like, you know, in between kind of sound checks and stuff like that, which I just love as an image. And, and if about... About six years later, one of the band members approached this studio, Together Studios, to say, actually, can we make this game, this game that, you know, you worked on just for that one photo shoot? Could we actually make this into a game? And they did. And what could have been an easily a gimmick, um, a tie-in that could have just bombed, has actually become um, really, really popular. And it's really quite lovely when that happens. We're actually you know, from one art form has kind of given birth to another, really, Mm. um, which I really, really like. And when I say it's a board game, it's a bit of a misnomer, really, because there isn't a board per se. It's a cloth. It's probably the first board game I own where you can actually kind of iron the board if you needed to. 
and it's really lovely when you kind of drape it over the table. It's like laying a table. There's my meal um, analogy, Sam. You're laying a table with a cloth, <laughs> draping it over the table, and it's this black cloth with this kind of white, um, kind of um, occult kind of set of um, symbols. It's split into these quadrants with these mysterious symbols, and each quadrant is a field. And what I quite like is the box itself, this wonderful black and white game box. You pop it in the center of it, and that becomes... That is the Illimat, essentially. And um, uh, and, and in, on top of this box, you place these four gold metal tokens called Ocus, and you've got like a tooth, you've got like a bathtub, uh, you've got um, a feather. It, it took me back to the, you know, the Monopoly pieces. You'd have these strange, incongruous mm-hmm. items that you'd be kind of using to go around the board. And, and... And the second reason why I like this game, aside from its origins, is the fact that it it is a beautiful marriage of card game and board game. So um, it went down an absolute storm with my family because I grew up in a family where we had board games, but the board games were were what we played as kids primarily. My parents would play card games and they'd kind of play those kind of grown-up games with, you know, um, like Scrabble and Rummy Cub with their mates. It's only been in the last few years where we've actually, when when we've gotten together, we've played board game, board games, um, for want of a better word. And what I mean by that is more recent board games. So um, what's really quite nice about this is it, I think it is a great game to play with those who understand how a card game works. It's rhythm. Uh, but they, but also for those yeah. who, who like the rhythm of a board game, that sense of chance, uh, a little bit of variability there as well. Um, you can't game the game per se because the strategies are a little bit up in the air and in flux because they're contingent on certain chance things happening, which I'll get on in a bit. Like I think the feeling I had playing it was, for some reason, I just I just felt like I was in a I was in a casino. <laughs> I, d- I don't know why that was. Like whether it's like the cloth mat giving it that gives you that sort of you know that feeling that you're playing on bays. Yeah, which. Uh, it's very different to playing on the, you know, this is the table I eat off. Um, I feel I feel that helps, like the tarot-sized cards, mm-hmm. these this like bespoke deck it, it makes, and like this um, the the way that the box acts like a turntable in the middle of in the in the in yeah. the center of of the table as well to indicate how the the seasons are sort of moving around it had it 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 really felt like it was the, the same trappings of you know playing a game in the in the casino and i guess you're right in terms of what you're what you're saying chris in terms of that marriage of like what a board game is and what a card game is is the same that you know it's the same way that some people just sit down and play you know 21 or blackjack there's people who sit down and play blackjack, but then there are people who sit down and play blackjack. Yeah. Like, and Illimat definitely feels like that. At first you feel like, oh, this is a nice, like, jaunty little, like, car game. And, like, I'm putting down that thing there and picking up this thing here. And suddenly it dawns on you that that there is a lot more beneath beneath this thing. And... and, and it really does a great job of slowly unveiling those layers. And and I think that's helped by the fact that just like in a casino, things are generally played in rounds. And again, like that sort of casino experience is that you learn very quickly from what other players are doing. So when, so when we play, Chris, after the first round, you were like, 
oh, I've scored nine points. And I was like, I've scored one. But I was very, I was very quickly able to tell and pick up on, oh, I can see what Chris was doing. Oh, I see when, yeah, he played that card and that's, yeah, and that's a good thing to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to start doing that thing. It's the same way that you would see like, oh, that guy's stuck on 18 and that seems rather than like carrying on drawing cards like that seems like i'll start doing that now and that will give that will give me some results so it has that you know um same feeling of like that same sort of appeal to me like it was it was a really strange experience and i don't know why that it came into my mind but that's what the game feels like it's interesting because and maybe it is that sense i do feel you feel you feel like a bit like a croupier when you're dealing cards onto like that cloth board Cause, yes. Yeah, because essentially you do. You deal the cards and there's a sense of a ritual. Like you deal um, the cards into each of these four fields, these kind of quadrants, and you deal cards to the players. And these these feel familiar. You've got, you know, you've got numbers and faces, um, but instead of four suits, you've got five and you kind of remove one of those suits when you're playing a two to three player game. Um, but in each corner, as Sam alluded to, you have a tarot card, which you put face down. And this is called a luminary card, uh, which I'll get onto a bit. And it's very simple mechanically. On the surface, you've got three things you can do. You can sow a card, so leaning into that kind of agricultural field, you know, theme, where you you put a card into a field face up. You can harvest a card, or you can stockpile a card. So when you harvest a card, you basically take a card from a field that matches one that's in your hand. Very simple. And you mm-hmm. you put that in a harvest pile. Both of those cards. Um, stockpiling is the trickiest action to kind of wrap one's head around. But it, it, broadly speaking, it's about creating piles of cards that you may be able to harvest in the future. So you're kind of investing in that field now with a hope that somebody else won't take that by the time it comes around to you and you want to harvest. And mm-hmm. the aim of the game is to get the most points. Uh, you primarily get that by collecting cards in your harvest pile. And that, that generally sounds like a very standard card game. However, what I like about it is because I've played lots of games growing up in my family like Pontoon and all this kind of stuff and and there are always there's always that one person who just knows they just knows what to look for they're counting the cards in their head they know the probability they know the strategy it works and they stick to it and they always win and after a while that's really infuriating this is a game where you cannot really do that fully because there are these twists in the game and as Sam alluded to one of these is a literal twist because you have the Illimat, uh, mm-hmm. this box. The box rotates um, because on each side of the box represents a different season. And each season has a particular rule in terms of what you can and can't do. So if the box is, rot- you know, if the, the, si- if the field, the, um, the side of the box connected to a field is autumn, um, that means you cannot sow any cards into that field. So you can't put anything in there. On the winter side, you cannot harvest in spring, you cannot stockpile, but in summer, you can do everything. So, And every time a player puts a face card pile into a field, even if they're harvesting or sowing, whatever season that is on that card, the box immediately rotates to that. So, you know, I could be planning, okay, I've stockpiled something here. Great, on my round, I'll harvest that. Oh, no, Sam has just played that face card there. The box has rotated. Mm-hmm. That field is now winter. I cannot do anything. So what I love about that is that it stops those people who are always at the you know, in those kind of card games who kind of game the game. And I really quite like that fact. 
also uh, when you clean when you clear a field the first person to clear a field of cards that's when that tarot card in the corner of the field gets flipped over and that is your luminary card and these have some really interesting kind of archetypal names it feels very pagan like a tarot card um, such as the forest queen and they, they kind of give you certain abilities there and then so when the forest queen is flipped over until that card is then removed it's always summer in that field. You don't rotate the box, it stays summer. The, the, the first one I flipped over was the newborn and I felt very, I thought, it's like one of those moments where I just went, oh my God, the game is speaking to me, which is great, which which further enhances kind of like the spooky ethereal feeling it has anyway. Yeah, and, and they're beautiful, beautiful images. They feel like really ornate, something you want to frame on your wall. And, yeah. and the whole game, I should say, I know I harp on about aesthetics, but the materiality of this, the textures of the cloth, those those chunky metallic ochus tokens on the box, the, the the artwork is just resplendent. It is utterly gorgeous, and it just, mm-hmm. and it feels ritualistic. It feels like you're enacting something of a ritual when you're playing it, and that also leans into that kind of pagan sense of nature and the seasons and the cycles, and it just feels right. Your scoring token is a pebble. It's a white pebble. Yeah. which you move around the side of the cloth. Um, it's just lovely. So, yes, you've got these luminary cards. They have these different abilities. Um, in fact, the one that you alluded to there, Sam, the new ball, when you flip that over, it automatically flips the luminary over on the other side. And um, players will get ochus tokens if they're the first to clear a field or when they take the card. And these each luminary card you take, an ochus token gives you a point at the end of the game. And when all the cards in your hand are spent and all the ones from the draw pile are spent, that's the end of the round. And you keep playing, resetting and doing rounds until you get um, a player up to 17 points. And scoring is really interesting because you can actually lose points, which I find, which I really love as well. So even if I'm running away with the game at some points, there's a chance that I could lose points because you score points for getting the most cards at the end of each round. Uh, you also score points for getting the most of a certain suit, but you also lose points for getting the most of a certain suit. So you're thinking about that when you're playing as well. So the scoring feels quite balanced as a consequence. And yeah, it's a perfect game for a kind of a mixed bag of players who like the card games, some of them board games. It has an expansion which came out the same year, which I bought immediately. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting my hands up here, you know, uh, I just wanted more luminary cards. And what I love with the Crane Wife expansion is that every time I play Illumat, I can actually play every time. And I've played it a number of times. I never get a repeat of luminary cards. It's, it always feels like the right, the exact amount. And I've played it two player, I've played it three player. We've always exhausted all the luminary cards by the end of the game, which is a really nice, satisfying feeling, um, really. So, yeah, I can highly recommend it. If you want something that will make people go ooh when you reveal that on the table yeah that's it, something that's it's, it's not quite a light game that you want to play in between games but it's not quite a heavy game because as i said before it depends largely on the luminary cards that are flipped because sometimes you'll play a game where only one luminary card will be flipped in a round other times all four of them will flip and it's just quite manic and it's it's crazy and the game picks a pace uh, picks up a pace particularly if you've got a luminary card that eats cards as you're playing uh, but it's really lovely. It feels very grandiose. And um, particularly this time of year, it's it's a great surefire gift for somebody, definitely. And actually, mm-hmm. I discovered it through somebody who'd received it as a gift because they'd sort of seen it and said, oh, you'll like this. That was yet another episode of Staying In with Sam Turner, Daniel Frost, and myself, Chris Darby. 
Big thank you to the Plastic Soldier Company for sending us a review copy of Roman Roll. Public information, stayinginpodcast.com is where you need to go to plug yourself into the social feeds and keep your fingers on our pulses. If you want to drop us an email, stayinginpod at gmail.com is our address. Please let us know what cereal you think would make a lovely dinner. Till next time. Bye.